Hi friends, it's Sarah again. Thank you for joining me in part 4 as we continue our exploration into the poltergeist phenomena, with the arguments for and against poltergeist as an inherent human narrative and the naughty little girl hypothesis. We are also going to be taking a brief look into one of the more controversial theories today, namely that of some historical cases bearing similarities to potential cases of DID, or Dissociative Identity Disorder. Because of this, this episode has some themes which some may want to avoid. If you feel this may harm you in any way, I encourage you to skip this episode and I'll see you next time. Human mythmaking has no lack of eerily similar narratives, as we have already become aware. Transcending our cultural and religious differences, it asks the question of whether human minds may naturally run along similar veins under similar circumstances, the idea that there may be certain intrinsic narratives somehow to the human condition. Taking, for example, the UFO myth, investigators into the phenomena were puzzled by the seemingly modern tales dating back to medieval time of strange craft visiting the earth and offering the same kind of contact scenarios that 50s Americans were experiencing, even down to word choice in descriptions of crafts. They would be described as cigar-shaped and the rigid structure these visitations would take. This idea of offering a tour of the craft, even before these stories existed as a blueprint which could serve as inspiration. These historical reports captured the imagination as they pulled on a common thread through human thought that perhaps we were not alone as intelligent life on the earth and that alien life may have visited us from the skies. And this idea that humanity or self-awareness may hinge somewhat on the idea of what is not human, what is not like us, something that doesn't have the same consciousness as us, whether this hinges on this kind of dichotomy and therefore stories were bred out of it. For whatever reason, as we've already learned, 99% of poltergeist cases involve an adolescent or a young child. They already have quite a strict little story to them like I said the main character in this if you were is always an adolescent or a young child the cases where there is not a young child or an adolescent involved are statistically negligible it's just not part of the framework of what a poltergeist is now children are the excellent source for perpetuating or originating a lot of paranormal themes and paranormal ideas. For example, fairies, the very famous case of the two sisters photographing their fairies and seemingly baffling a lot of adults around them with these little paper cutouts just propped in front of a camera. People assumed, despite the obvious fraud involved here, that children in some ways exists a little bit closer to the paranormal, that it's a kind of side effect to the popular assumption that children in their minds have less of a distinct gap between their imagination and what they view as the reality of the world. We can imagine in a child's mind a kind of grey area between their thoughts and their actions, and we can imagine it played out along these kinds of lines. 
I, a child may believe themselves to be fully innocent. They may believe they've just thought about throwing some stones or stealing some food or any other kind of bad behavior. If you've ever interacted with a young child, or even if you have any memory of being a young child, which I hope you will do, you'll know that this is a kind of common occurrence. Confronting a child on something that they've broken or lost and hearing, no, it wasn't me who did that, it was my imaginary friend, or it was so-and-so, they're gone now. I'm almost certain that as a child I was responsible for doing this all the time. But children are far from alone in this trait of exteriorizing bad behavior, saying it wasn't me, or as an adult kind of transforming it and saying, oh, I wasn't myself when that happened. We all practice to a certain extent this behavior of deflecting blame or guilt from ourselves, even if we're not 100% taken in by our own lies. This is a common thought through a lot of paranormal investigators, actually. They do seem to, a lot of time, find some seat of guilt or worry within the, the focus of the poltergeist experience and argue that it is in some way a way of deflecting this kind of guilt or these bad feelings. A lot of them lean on the kind of Freudian analysis that it's pretty much all just, you know, Oedipus complex and misplaced attraction. I think that's a little bit simplistic, but obviously that's not the only reason people may have a reason to deflect guilt from themselves or to exteriorize some of their feelings. But to take it back down to the realm of the poltergeist, we can imagine a specific scenario involving a child. So as we said, there is always statistically a child at the centre of the disturbance. We can assume there will be a child there. Now you can imagine this child imagines themselves an imaginary friend, someone who is always there and who is responsible for any of the child's bad or disruptive behaviour that they get caught for. It's almost a reflexive response that, oh, it wasn't me, it was my imaginary friend. But in reality, they are the sole perpetrator of all of their actions, naturally. But they position themselves reflexively, almost unconsciously after a time, as reacting to this behaviour. And depending on how vivid the child's imagination is, you could assume that, in some cases, through this repetition, the child honestly starts to truly believe that this behaviour is not their own behaviour, or they can come to do so if given an adequate incentive to do that. So if they know bad behaviour deserves and brings punishment, there's a tangible incentive to being blameless and a so self-deception fueling this kind of wish fulfilment to get to this end goal of avoiding the punishment that somewhere deep down inside they know that they deserve. Now this may appear to some people that it supposes that children are stupider than they are, that they are completely unaware of this process. I don't think they are, but you have to remember just how strongly the mind is capable of self-deception, how easy it is for us to lie to ourselves, even as an adult, and, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. But it does create this kind of situation where a poltergeist case could start out as a parent with good intentions, just humouring their child. They're humouring a child's natural tendencies, which slowly get out of hand. 
And over time, as more and more people come into the situation and come in with the idea of interpreting this behavior as paranormal, it cements in everyone's eyes, including the child's, this exteriorization of the bad behavior. And more and more, it will appear to be originating from outside the child. More and more, it seems to be a paranormal force as more people come to believe in it. Like I said, the human capability to self-deceive is immense. And then eventually, over time, this original link to the child's imagination, their kind of game, is lost. And what we have left is the poltergeist. Now again, this only forms part of an explanation, because of course it does not really explain every single physical manifestation as reported the cases where items are transported from locked room to another locked room or items flying through the air. It does not fully explain this, but I believe there is a strength in its simplicity in that it can be applied to almost any case involving a minimum of one child and at least one sympathetic adult. It can start to explain why people are geared to interpret behavior in this way and why as a people we need to kind of exteriorize some of the less desirable parts about our personality and our lives. And again, I think this is a common thread through narrative because it says something about how we need to relate to the world around us. As I was saying with the UFO phenomena, having an other to point at to say, this is alien, this is not me, helps us to know what we are. Knowing what we aren't helps us to know what we are. And in this way, knowing what we don't desire about ourselves, what we don't value, what we wish to distance from ourselves, can help us to realise what we do value in ourselves or what we believe due to circumstances, due to the environment around us, to be valuable as facets of our personality and which things seem to exist as a part of us but as a part of us that we wish to expunge. Now I'm going to move on to some more modern and some slightly more complicated theories involving some topics that are honestly beyond my complete understanding. At least one of the subjects is a matter of debate in many ways and the thought around it is still evolving and ongoing but I'm gonna outline just some of the ways that they can help us in our search for a coherent explanation for the poltergeist. I would like to say at this point and I will reiterate I am not a medical professional, I do not have a medical background so take everything I say with a pinch of salt. I'm just interested in the topic. I mean, no offense. And I genuinely would just like to learn more. I think it's very interesting. So moving on to the subject that will probably get this episode re-edited later in the future. We're going to be talking about DID or dissociative identity disorder. Now, this is a fairly new theory when applied to poltergeist phenomena. And when I say that, I don't want you to take from that that I'm saying DID is new or DID is a theory. It has gained more general attention recently as a few notable 
people have come through to document through social media their day-to-day experiences. A lot more people are getting a perspective on DID and learning what it may look like to live with it. But like I said, I don't think it is a new phenomena. I think like various other mental disorders and illnesses, we as a society are simply just getting better at recognising it and diagnosing it and treating it. But I am not, as I said, a medical professional, so I'm on pretty shaky ground here. I just want to kind of dip my toe into the subject as it came up as one of the most fascinating aspects of my research so far and took it in a very interesting direction. So, Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID, was previously known as Multiple Personality Disorder, or MPD, which I imagine for a lot of you rings more of a bell. But it is a mental disorder characterised by the maintenance of two or more distinct personality states. So in simplistic terms, a person suffering from DID will have various personality states existing as distinct from each other in their brain. So they have their own memories, they have their own personality traits, their own desires and passions. It is distinct from other mental illnesses such as BPD or borderline personality disorder, which have aspects of unconsciously switching and adapting personality traits for a given situation, the so-called chameleon effect. But as mentioned with BPD, this is a sort of adapting of your personality for the company around you or the environment around you. It is not a switching between distinct states, as implied by chameleon is more adapting yourself to your environment rather than completely swapping from one personality to another. And it is not as well something that most of us experience this kind of discomfort we may feel when we recognize in ourselves a kind of unconscious shift in our behavior or personality. When we say introduce a work colleague to our friend group or we shift from family mode to socializing with friends, it's it's not this kind of subtle shift that most of us unconsciously do to adapt to our surroundings it's not this it is the unconscious maintenance of several distinct personalities and some view it as various personalities seeming to share the same body so a person switching from one personality to another may experience total amnesia of what the other personality has done and find themselves suddenly in possession of a body that will have moved and will have made decisions and got undressed and left the house without any conscious memory of those actions and without any conscious recall. Now it is associated with various other mental illnesses including anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, seizures and substance abuse. The disorder is thought to be associated with overwhelming trauma. So that is the current thought that it is formed through overwhelming trauma during your childhood years, so often stemming from childhood abuse, unfortunately. It goes without saying that it is a very serious and debilitating disorder, and treatment usually involves supportive care and the attempts to treat the underlying trauma with psychotherapy. There is no real cure to DID. There's no pill that you can take and it will resolve this. 
But as I said, I'm not a doctor, so I don't feel comfortable commenting much further on the hypothesized cause or the diagnostic method when it comes to DID. But I will simply build upon Colin Wilson's investigations where he linked certain noted historical cases of the disorder to poltergeist phenomena. So Wilson expressed it as such and introduced cases he knew of as DID in this view, building on the spiritualist idea of a spirit existing as distinct from the body, he argued that the mind and body are as distinct as tenants and the houses that they live in. Again, I like that this brings in the idea of the tenant, that in most people's lived experiences, they rarely inhabit a space made and reserved solely for them. People may inhabit spaces, houses, flats for a time, but majority of people aren't by blood or lineage or some persistent human idea linked to their space by more than circumstance. So I feel like poltergeist phenomena kind of leans a little bit more on this. As we mentioned, they tend to exist in is kind of temporary residences, people who live somewhere for a time and they will move on and they rarely happen in people's ancestral homes. They, they happen in council houses, they happen in flats that people are just living in for a time. And I really like that distinction between poltergeists and traditional hauntings. They really do exist in a, in a different kind of bubble, a different kind of background to traditional hauntings. So I like this idea of bringing in the theme of a kind of tenant and a house as distinct in that they may be sort of entangled for a time, but not necessarily inherently linked together. So if we expand this out to think about personalities, as Wilson is, he says that some personalities may exist as cohabitants or roommates in the same body, appearing to be resolved back into the primary personality with luck or with effort or just changing circumstances. So we start to break down this binary idea of one personality or one spirit and one body, and we free up the idea of a body with multiple spirits within it, or a body with none, a spirit without a body, all of which we find examples in in poltergeist accounts. Now, Alan Gould also mentions a link between poltergeists and specifically the disassociated, the D part of DID. He noticed in the victims of many poltergeist cases, disassociated tendencies, especially in relation to expressing aggression. In his mind, we often undervalue the power of societal pressure, outlines two cases of young women being stuck in such a rigid personality structure as down on them from the societal pressure they were under. And due to this rigid structure, he believes that they developed DID or something like it, he says, as the unconscious brain attempted to overthrow the conscious brain. Now, unconscious here, meaning our suppressed wants and desires, rather than a distinct personality being suppressed. But he codified a structure, a kind of ladder of personalities, as he viewed it in DID cases, 
with personalities roughly corresponding to the desires of the unconscious and conscious mind and the ego. And they represented a pattern in which a person may undergo a tremendous trauma or stress and the unconscious mind, desiring comfort or control, may overthrow the conscious one as it feels it fails to respond appropriately to the situation. Now, records of suspected cases of DID are contemporaneous with even the earliest of poltergeist cases post the outset of spiritualist thought. Now, it's not to say that someone with a bit more knowledge of DID may be able to pick up signs of even earlier cases, but we're always in a funny situation when we try to attribute newly understood mental disorders to historical cases because we never have the full picture and it's a little bit too easy to pick and choose to support a hypothesis. But as an example, the 1811 case of Mary Reynolds was pretty much agreed on to be a case of DID. So she was described kind of really unfairly before her troubles manifested as just a dull and melancholy girl. But it was said that she awoke one day from a deep sleep as a whole other person, and that's how it was perceived by those around her. She appeared to act like a newborn baby. She didn't seem to recognise her surroundings and those around her, and she had to relearn all of the knowledge that she had gained since infancy. So she had to relearn how to walk, she had to relearn how to talk. Now it should be pointed out that this this knowledge wasn't gone, it was still in her brain, so she did pick up these skills again at a much more accelerated rate, but she seemed to kind of plateau and stop at around age 10, so she did relearn a lot of the knowledge that she kind of missed out on, whether because half, part of it was um, muscle memory, so it wasn't all just conscious long-term memory, some of it was just uh, muscle memory, so she may have had a sort of bodily memory of some of this, but nevertheless she regained it all at an accelerated rate and seemed to sort of plateau around the age 10. But the clearest change in her was with her disposition. So as before she was apparently dull and melancholy, like I said, mean. Um, this new personality was reckless and impulsive, kind of to a fault, she seemed to be seemingly fearless and kind of only didn't get herself into serious trouble out of just dumb luck. But her melancholy was gone. So she seemed to be just so diametrically opposed to how people viewed her previously that people described it as if there were it was a completely different mind in the same body. But just as quickly as this change occurred, it reversed and the old careful Mary, the original Mary, awoke one day as if no time had passed at all with no warning. And these two Marys would continue to alternate, seeming to switch out and take charge of the one body for the next 20 years. Eventually, she learned to deal with the resultant amnesia blank spaces occupied by her other half. And it did seem to be, at least in Mary's eyes, her other half. So each 
Mary exhibited traits not present in the other one, one scrupulously cautious, one impulsive to a fault, one outdoorsy, one more comfortable in solitude inside. And it has been suggested that this is precisely why the two continued to alternate, with one personality seeming to overthrow from a subsumed position, like that of the unconscious, when their tendencies pulled them into harm's way. This idea has been applied to some poltergeist cases also, such as in 1910, when paranormal investigator Walter Prince applied it to a friend of his wife, who he called Doris. Now, Doris was said by all to be a sweet girl who, like many others afflicted by the paranormal and those living with DID, had undergone a severe shock in her childhood. Now, she continued to live with her father, even though he was the one who was identified as the instrument causing this kind of fissure in her personalities. When she was three years old, her drunk father, uh, a drunk throughout her entire life, snatched her from the mother's arms and threw her to the floor. She survived the impact, but it was Prince's theory that Doris at this point became, as he says, a, a dual personality to save her mind from total collapse. Her struggles began at this time, but all in all, she was said to lead quite a happy life. This dual personality, the second personality he described, kind of came in and acted as a kind of control in some ways, but they seem to kind of balance each other out in a way. So after this point, a personality prince called Margaret would appear and she was kind of mischievous in all of the ways that we might associate with the poltergeist. So Doris would often find herself back in the possession of their body at the point Margaret had succeeded in some petty crime or annoyance. So just as she had stolen some food or snuck away from their parents, Doris would be kind of left to deal with the consequences. And again, Margaret seemed to be developmentally kind of fixed around the age of 10. So she enjoyed dolls and she enjoyed jokes and was very resistant to Doris's attempts to study. And they formed part of a ladder of other personalities that also emerged due to other shocks in her life. So such as the sudden death of Doris's mother and the premonition that Doris was said to have of her death. She had a vision of her mother quickly returned back to the home, fearing that her mother was dead, found her unfortunately dead in their bed only for her again alcoholic father to return back and crawl into bed unnoticing and unknowingly with his dead wife. So Prince kind of described this case as he knew it in the words of a benevolent possession as it kind of allowed Doris to live through a life that was full of enormous shock and pain by kind of stripping aspects of her personality and desires down into a kind of nested structure of personalities and kind of placing some of these things underneath layers where they couldn't be hurt. It kind of 
helped her to form the sort of armour she needed so as not to completely lose herself to the trauma. If you're more interested in this, like I said, I would recommend doing some research into DID because these ideas are still pretty relevant to how many people view DID and what its causes are. So it's worth looking into in a bit more detail. But if we imagine someone looking at these details of this case from not just a psychological perspective, but from a paranormal perspective, we can see again how, as we said, it challenges this idea of one mind, one body, and the kind of need we have to believe that there is an inherent meaning in this relationship, that it's somehow less dissonant to view these incidents as if an unknown or unseeable third party had interceded and enacted these behaviours than if it were in fact a part of ourselves. I think it is inherently terrifying to think that we may not have a full idea of our own lives or be in full control and that some of us at some point in our lives may experience this level of amnesia where another personality seems to inhabit what we view as our body or that we may even be that other personality unknowingly for a time. But if we remember that the vast majority of poltergeist effects recorded in popular record are well within the scope of what a human is capable of, it's possible that some of these cases we've spoken about woven as they are with trauma and suffering, may in fact represent some undiagnosed cases of DID or something like it, where a mind seems to kind of fracture itself just to get through the day, exhibiting seemingly impossible strength and characteristics and highlighting just how distorted a mirror of reality our mind can reflect back at us particularly when under tremendous stress. Again, I will take the time to reiterate that I'm not a medical professional, and what I know and talk about comes from my own research into paranormal phenomena and how their stories play out. I mean no offence to anyone who may be suffering in this way, and I will continue to educate myself on it. But I wanted to briefly touch on this, as it is a theory that many respected paranormal figures have touched upon, and I could not leave it out entirely, even if my explanation is far from perfect, is incomplete in some ways. I hope I can revisit this in more depth in the future, but for now I'm going to move on. Thank you for joining me in part four of the Poltergeist story. Stay tuned for the next part where we take a look into some more paranormal explanations for the poltergeist. In the meantime, find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts.